Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are art director Mike Pekovich and senior editor Matt Kenny. Now, as I always say, uh, if you enjoy the show, please feel free to go to our iTunes page and leave a five-star rating and maybe even a nice positive comment if you like. Uh, we read them all, and we appreciate them all very much. Uh, now on to the show. Um, I am slightly more tanned than I was during the last podcast because I came back from visiting my uh, mother's family in Cuba, and uh, which was a really cool trip because it was my mom's. My mom came with us, and it was her first trip back since she left when she was fifteen in uh, the early sixties. Wow, great! Um, so it was pretty heavy, but um, there is a furniture-related uh, topic here. Um, as a lot of folks know, a lot of those, um, you know, the exiles who left in the beginning of the revolution, they had to just kind of hightail it out of Dodge. And they left these huge, beautiful Spanish-style mansions behind that were full of furniture, um, a great deal of it Cuban mahogany. Um, so I, what I found down there was you go into a lot of these really old homes and you find the most incredible furniture that's – it hasn't been maintained. I mean, the, the finishes are – oftentimes an awful shape, but I mean, you, it's just like a treasure trove. Um, and God only knows, like much like the vintage cars down there, I was thinking, I just can't imagine how gaga people are going to go for buying vintage furniture down there when things change. But um, that uh, kind of leads me into this uh, thing that I discovered at my aunt and uncle's house. Um, we were staying with family outside of Havana in uh, a little town called Santa Fe, and it's where my aunt and uncle have lived since like 1939. So my great my uh, great grandfather built this house on the you know right on the water, and uh, in this fishing village, and he loaded it with all of this Spanish style ornately carved uh, Cuban mahogany furniture, and you know the the dining room. I'm going to post pictures of this on the blog post for the episode, but the dining room is just it's absurd. Um, this huge dining table with beveled edges that are all carved with vines and berries and then you've got these arching legs that come down into griffin's paws and it's just it's ridiculous and it's all solid and it's just oh and it's massive i mean legs they're very yeah. elegantly carved in shape but it looks like they started from i don't know almost six inch wide stock yeah, or big, something <clears throat> big beefy timbers yeah. yeah i mean there's no there's nothing from what i could tell because i i flipped a lot of stuff up and over nothing is laminated so it's yeah, you're starting on the legs were probably six by six inch um, mahogany. And then the, the, that X, the cross member at the bottom of the legs that, you know, keeps them square. I mean, that stuff is like, I don't know, four by three probably. Right. And then again, ornately carved. And um, my cousin down there was telling me that he once was offered for, for the dining table, all the chairs, the sideboard, the china cabinet, and this little uh, bar on coasters, all of Cuban mahogany from the twenties. I think he was offered like six grand, and I I winced and I, I kind of asked him. I was like, "You didn't you didn't even entertain that, right?" And he's like, "No, no, I didn't, because I would never get rid of this furniture. I love it. It's right. part of our yeah. family history. And I would never get rid of it." So, was the guy trying to buy it? Was he just a woodworker who was planning on taking it and milling all the stock down, <laughs> and making new stuff? Out he of was it. a very wealthy. Uh, I think he was an Italian, hmm. a really wealthy guy who um, was trying to. I think he married a Cuban woman. And he was trying to um, build his own house down there, which is technically you can't do if you're a foreigner. So a lot of people will marry a Cuban woman. 
that gives them the ability to build the house. Hmm. And then you want it to load it up with all this vintage furniture. So obviously there's no export market for this no. furniture at this point. No. Right. Um, and what ends up happening when foreigners do that sort of thing is the government waits for you to get about 80% done with your house, and then they seize it. Hmm. And then the house <laughs> just falls into ruin. Um, so it's not the smartest move to make. Um, but uh, the, so while I was you know taking measurements and photographs of this beautiful furniture, because I'd like to someday make a scaled-down version of the table if I can learn how to carve, um, I looked up. And the dining room in my aunt and uncle's house has hardwood timbers that run across as joists. They're exposed, uh, or rafters, rather. And then there's uh, skip sheathing above Mm -hmm. it, like hardwood sheathing. And then above that are those clay tiles outside, right? So I looked up, and it's like this dark hardwood. And I was asking my cousin, it's like, so what what kind of wood is that up there, you know? And it's all mahogany. And then he goes on, and so my jaw dropped, like, oh, my God, the entire ceiling is mahogany. And then he goes, oh, yeah, you didn't know about the siding, too? Yeah. All the siding on the house is mahogany, yeah. so it just makes you it makes you realize why all that cube of mahogany is is you know has been decimated. I mean, people were just they were just cutting it willy nilly on the hmm. island and using it you know to frame roofs. roofs. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. Yeah. But it's the wood they had available to them, so that's why they they, sure. they didn't uh, impose as much value on it as we would. But I mean, they have ce- Spanish cedar down there. I mean, mm. you could sheath your house in cedar, side your house in cedar, sure. but. And that would be bug resistant, but I did notice that, that house is in such good shape because of the mahogany. I mean, that the siding is it, it's super solid; it doesn't mm. move. It's there's no checks in it after seventy years. It's like it's in beautiful shape, mm-hmm. but it I, I kind of feel bad that it's all been painted. You know? uh, <laughs> a, a mahogany, uh, like a natural mahogany house, would be a little funky looking. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> shellac little, it. Yeah, just shellac, shellac. it. It'll be nice and gray in weather. It's actually it's a good wood for uh, that's true would, for uh, uh, outdoor stuff, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it would gray in weather. It'd look really nice. I, I suppose. I, yeah, Cuban mahogany is a little. If you, you can buy it still in the United States by from Deadfall down in the yep. uh, southern uh, Florida, but it's you know twenty dollars or more board foot, and I don't right. think I'd be doing that for outdoor furniture. No, um, but now I understand why there's. Next so to no Cuban mahogany left. Yeah. <laughs> because my grandfather was busy building houses with it. Yeah. Um, and they made big boats with it too, right? They did. I did find out that, um, so in Spanish, the word for mahogany is caoba, C-A-O-B-A. And uh, just for those who are interested in history, um, in the 17th century, the wood was principally reserved for shipbuilding, like you just said, Matt. And it was declared a royal monopoly at Havana in 1622. So I suppose that means that only the Spanish could use mahogany, and it was only for use originally in shipbuilding. Um, I also found out that, and I don't know how true this is, because this is just something I read on Wikipedia, and I don't trust the veracity of everything I read off Wikipedia, but there was a reference to the fact that the original mahogany that folks were using um, to build furniture and whatnot with, um, you know, back a couple hundred years ago, was uh, from Jamaica. And I don't know if it was the same genus or not, but it was from Jamaica. And then they clear-cut Jamaica... And then they started using the stuff Cuba. off Cuba more. Um, and there's also this debate as to whether, you know, Cuban mahogany is the best, you know, uh, genus of mahogany to use for furniture, whether it's the, got the nicest grain and so on and so forth. So I don't know. Uh, what people like about it is it's super dense and it's almost like a, like a piece of chocolate. So it carves pretty yes. well. Yeah. Uh, and that's why it's so nice for older period work because it holds carved details extremely well. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the again, I'll post the photos on um, on the blog for this uh, podcast. But the the photos of the carving in this furniture, like you know, this furniture is seventy, eighty years old, eighty years old, and 
despite the fact that it's been knocked about, it hasn't been maintained. Um, the carving, I'm zooming in on one of the photos now, like the carving is still very, it holds up super well. Could you describe a little bit more what you're doing right now for the listeners? Because I'm sure that that's tantalizing for everyone. What, what I'm doing? I'm zooming in on the photo. I'm zooming in on the photo. With my, I have my I'm phone here. I'm looking at the carving. But, um, well, because I'm going to put it up on the blog post. But um, anyhow, before we get to the first question, enough talk about the Caribbean, um, we should say that poor Matt is very ill and has um, decided to uh, do the podcast, but then you'll be scooting out of here going into your bed yes. very shortly. So. I'm feeling better. Because so, of the podcast. So the Cuban Better mahogany get... discussion, this was a way for you to write off your vacation? <laughs> right. uh, absolutely. Okay. You guys ruined my joke. I was going to say, I'm feeling better. And you're going to say, you are? And I'm like, yeah, you better get me a bucket. I think I'm going to be sick. That's uh, Come on, Monty Python, meaning of life. I'm not even going to offer a cymbal crash for that <sighs> in my sound you're effects. You're killing me. Um, Maybe it's the uh, the fever. <laughs> the fever's on you, Matt. I got the fever. I got the vapors. Uh, you're going to need, oh, wait, then you know what? This ties into Cuba too. You know what you need when you have a, a chest cold like you do, Matt? You need Viva Peru. Is that anything like a Cuba Libre? No, Viva Peru. You don't know what that is? No. Your grandma never put that on, rub that on your chest? It's a vapor rub. Vic's vapor rub with uh, a Cuban accent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Viva Peru. <laughs> um, but anyhow, so the first question, Matt, uh, Mike is looking at me as if he's totally disgusted <laughs> with my jokes and yours, Matt. Um, so the first question uh, for today came from Joel Smith. And he writes, Hi guys, I'm new to woodworking and plan on some big purchases for my shop. I'd like to know the differences, advantages, and disadvantages of a shaper versus a router table. Thanks for your help. So, gentlemen, shaper versus router table. Well, a shaper will cut off more fingers faster. Indeed. <laughs> right? That's true. That's one of the things that it excels at. Actually, um, depends what kind of shop you're going to be setting up. I mean, a shaper... Uh, is really good for uh, running molding and such. Just the geometry geometry of the cutters, it's a much larger diameter. So you have a shallower, you know, entry and exit out of the stock. Also a lot of mass to those cutters. So it's a, you get a really clean cut on doing moldings. Um, that said, the cutters themselves are quite expensive compared to a router bit. So, And you don't have as many readily available profiles. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially... If you go to Home Depot, you right. actually have More some than. router bits there. <laughs> yeah. uh, so basically, if you're setting up a cabinet sh- shop, if you're running you know, hundreds of feet of architectural trim or molding or something like that, Shaper is a must-have tool. If you're a furniture maker, yeah, probably a router table is going to give you all that you need in terms of routing profiles and stuff. And, right. And there's a couple ways to get into a router table. I think the easiest way nowadays is get one of those combo kits, get a midsize router motor with a plunge base and a fixed base. Take that fixed base, get a half sheet of plywood, bang together router table, screw that base to the bottom of there, stick your motor in there when you need a router table. When you need a regular handheld router, just put it in your plunge base. It's a good way to yeah. do You don't mean a half sheet of plywood, a 4 by 4 sheet of plywood, do you? You mean a half inch thick sheet of plywood? No, half sheet. You know, go... You know, get a couple, go to Home Depot, get a couple quarter sheets of three-quarter inch thick plywood. Yeah, a quarter sheet, yeah. Yeah, bang together a router table. I'd like to have a four-by-four four router table, a half sheet. Oh, I'm just talking, you can get the whole thing. <laughs> so what's a good size? I mean, my first router table was probably, I don't know, maybe um, say like 20 inches by 24 inches. I think I'd buy in a quarter sheet of three-quarter inch plywood at... Uh, at Home Depot or Lowe's is a good idea to start with. Yeah. You can bolt, you can screw the, the fixed base right to the underside, drill yep. a hole through it. Doug Stowe, who writes for us all the time, is a professional furniture maker. 
His uh, his, it's just a board. His router table is just like a piece of plywood. It's even smaller than a quarter sheet, you know. Yeah, and he has a really simple fence. Uh, It was a methods of work winner. Uh, He has a fence that's on one pivot point. One side's on a pivot point, and the other side he clamps clamps the others. Yeah, yeah, really simple, nice uh, little router table. That's all you need, really. Garrett Hack's router table is a router clamped in his vice. Oh, yeah. I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, one thing I would say is, if you do get a shaper, this is something I didn't think of, but it made sense. I was talking to a guy that owns a professional cabinet shop, right? And he asked me, "What do you think the most dangerous tool in the shop is?" And the guy that taught me to make furniture had a shaper, mm-hmm. and he always said, "I'm not going to use my shaper because it's so dangerous." So I said, "Shaper, right?" And he said, "Well, I mean, we have a power feed on ours, so our hands mm-hmm. never get close to the there shaper, you go. right?" So if you get a shaper and you're doing uh, raised panels and taking big chunks of wood out you've got to have a power feeder yeah yeah, yeah. but but for what this guy's doing i mean I, nah. it, what's the point because also the the cutting the cutter heads for shapers are super expensive right the profiles yes. probably in the neighborhood of 75 to 100 dollars minimum yeah Oof. but the, you can get custom profiles very easy sure. for a shaper. Right. Yeah. and the benefit is 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 the the scale of the profiles a a shaper can cut are much larger yes. than router bits but uh and then if you're going to step up to the higher end of a router table um, you can get a dedicated router lift and then a motor that, that mounts in there. Correct. You get the more precise height adjustments. That's really a nicer way to go yeah. in the long term. If you, I think all the kits now, if you buy a, uh, like a plunge and fixed base kit, I think they all come this way. But make sure that the base, the fixed base, you can adjust the height from above the table. Mm-hmm. Oh. That's really mm-hmm. important because otherwise you're you're reaching down under the table right. and doing that. One hand's up with a ruler and you're yeah, it's a pain in the neck. Yeah, I've sort of upgraded – uh, to a point of inconvenience, unfortunately, with my router table, I had a smaller router lift that I uh, was able to get my three-quarter horse router motor into it in a little portable table. That was great. I, I got greedy. Is that the one I bought off you? Uh, did you buy it? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. And um, Does it still work? It's got the Pekovich mystique to it. That's why I bought it. (laughs) So I upgraded to a full-size router lift, a cast iron router lift, a bench dog uh, router lift, and I stuck in a a three-and-a-quarter horse porter cable router motor into it, which I think is – that's the bomb. That's like the – about as big as you can get before you go into a shaper. The problem is I stuck everything in a a little portable router table that I stow underneath my – workbench when I'm not using it, now the thing weighs like 100 oh, pounds whenever yeah. I have to like pull the thing out. So really, it's not practical for a portable router table anymore. Now I've got to build a a dedicated router table. Why don't you – you have a side extension on your table saw? That's exactly what I'm thinking of doing because yeah. I don't want to dedicate the floor space to a router table, which really I don't use that all, right. all that often. But the side support table for a table saw is a perfect place to put it. Unfortunately – I roll my shop back underneath there when I'm not right. using that. So now I have to find a new place for my shop eh, back. Right, so. I wouldn't take up that much space, would it? I mean, you got a small shop. Yeah. So. What you, you need, need to do is a get hoist. a full sheet of plywood, make it a deck off the side of your shop, and then just put nice. the router in that. And you can use it for barbecuing in good weather and then route on it when you need it. An outdoor router table. It'd be awesome. That's, that should go in our outdoor projects special <laughs> it issue. It should, yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, let's let's head on to question two, and this one comes from Daryl Adams, and Daryl wrote, Hi, team. I'm interested in adding a shoulder plane to my collection. I saw the FWW article from July-August 2004 that gave a best value and best overall rating to the Veritas plane. Now, eight and a half years later, I'm wondering what your recommendation would be. If I'm only going to have one shoulder plane, what size would you suggest? Router. 
I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All my answers are going to be router today. Well, All we, right, Greg Paolini. <laughs> we uh, uh, just uh, did an article on the best hand planes for trimming tenons and such where we covered shoulder planes. And uh, the Veritas plane is still ranked right up there with the best, so that's not a bad way to go. Uh, in terms of size, I don't know about you, Matt, but uh, the bigger the better when it comes to shoulder planes for me. You do like that. Yes, if you're if, if it's for trimming tenons or rabbits, I guess what else are you going to be doing with it? I guess you could be cleaning out a dado bottom. If uh, You do your cheeks on the tenons as yeah. well as the shoulders. So, so I would get – yeah, the, what I turn to more often for tenon is uh, my block rabbit plane, which is essentially a, a really wide shoulder plane. Right, but not good for shoulders. Correct. Yeah. Uh, right, not good for shoulders. So it wouldn't really be a shoulder plane. Well, I said it was like. Okay. I didn't say it was, uh, Mike. So Come on. what I like about – the reason why I would recommend a, a big shoulder plane, and they're intimidating, which is why most folks, when they go to buy one, they see that and say, no, I'm going to go for the smaller one, which I did. I got a smaller Stanley. And the thing is it's – one thing is the width of the blade is nice because if you are trimming your cheeks as well, the wider blade is, is going to take up more material and fewer number of passes, which is hopefully going to guarantee – straighter tenons by the time they're trimmed. But I really like the mass of the tool because when you are working on the shoulders, even though you don't need the full width of the blade, the mass of the tool is really nice because as you you can really power through that end grain and take a really nice clean shaving yeah. with it. I do. I have a medium shoulder plane, which is about three quarters of an inch wide, the blade. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wish I had the bigger one. Yeah. Uh, I, f I found the two, uh, the two bigger ones I don't find very comfortable to hold. So I've not bought one. Okay. The, I'm saying the two, I mean uh, Lee Nielsen and Lee Valley. Okay. I own the Lee Nielsen. Mm -hmm. um, it's you find a you find ways to use it. Um, I we have the medium size Veritas Here. out in the shop. Right. And I've used that and I do like that. It has this sort of little funky tilting yeah. handle thing, uh, which is okay. Um, I've heard good things about the wide ones. I can only speak to Lee Nielsen because that's the one I own. I like it a lot. Yeah, I've used your Lee Nielsen one, and I do like it. It's it's nice. Uh, I like the I have the medium Veritas, and I like it because it does have that those little bendy knobs on it to so you can hold it at the back. Yeah, and that goes into the the little web between your thumb and your fingers, and it's uh, pretty comfortable to use. Yeah, the only thing about that, and the reason I like the Lee Nielsen is I end up gripping it right at the blade as opposed to at the back of the tool. Yes. I have good control there. But back to your little block rabbit plane. Yeah, is, I don't, we haven't really answered the guy's question yet. <laughs> I think we're just saying, I like this and I like that. If, oh. if you were if you were only going to have one shoulder plane, what size? Uh, big one. One inch blade. Mm -hmm. I think that's the big one. Yeah, that is the big one. Yeah. And uh, I'd say you can't go wrong with uh, Veritas or Lee, Lee Nielsen. Nielsen. Yeah. I, I get, we can say that because we've used those uh, and they've Specifically, been tested. Yeah. Yes. And, there are other brands out there that I haven't used, so I wouldn't feel comfortable saying, and I don't know if we've tested them. Right. Um, I would also say neither. I would get a block rabbit plane because really you don't do shoulders very often. I mean you can work around that by uh, cutting your shoulders at the table saw and then cut your cheeks wherever you want to and then clean it up with a block rabbit plane. Yeah, get a shoulder plane. You absolutely need one. <laughs> All, All right. right. So that's the final word. Okay. Uh, well, let's head into our first segment uh, of the week, and that's going to be all-time all time favorite technique of all time for this week, where we express our undying devotion to our most beloved woodworking techniques. Um, Mike, let's start with you, the elder statesman here. Well, I, was, I actually would like to take credit for 
investing some forethought into this technique that I was using actually just yesterday. Um, but it happened kind of by accident. Basically, what I was doing is I'm making a, a uh, travel tool chest uh, for some of my tools when I go teaching and such and demonstrations. Anyway, there's a Thanks fix- for blowing the next segment, Mike. Sorry. No, it's, a, it's, <laughs> it's just a little uh, preamble. Um, anyway, there's a fixed shelf where I have some square through tenons. And uh, this shelf is not as thick as the outside of the case. I milled it down to five-eighths of an inch thick. And I'm setting up to cut some layout and cut some square through tenons to, so, to uh, fix the shelf to the sides. Anyway, what I sort of discovered by accident was that I actually milled the stock to exactly five-eighths of an inch which was happened to be the width of the blade on my small four-inch combination square. And that reminded me of a technique from Tim Russo, who did a floating top table for us, where he actually lays out his joinery uh, mortises and tenons and such to the width of his combination square. And then he, he describes, sets up this combination square and scribes on either side of the blade to set the width of the tenons and mortises. And so basically... By accident, I had set up to do the same thing, and it worked out really well. It's this quicker notion. layout, yeah. And I thought, wow, and I thought, wow, is this kind of a novel idea? And I thought, nah, it's not really. It's back in the day when folks were chopping mortises by hand. It's really common to take your mortising gauge, which is basically your double pin marking gauge, and set the width of that to match your mortising chisel. Of course, and then right. you chop it, and you're all set. So you know, like I said, you know, everything new. Under the sun uh, isn't when it comes to woodworking. but uh, So that's my technique is, is set up joinery around the width of either the tool or, in this case, your combo square. And it just makes setup that much more easy. That's a lot smarter than what I normally do, which is I'll cut the joinery and then I'll go either make a tool or buy a new tool to fit what I've already done. Well, <laughs> that has its advantages, more tools. I'm always grinding down chisels. <laughs> no, well, Matt? I don't do that. What do you, what do you got? Um your all-time favorite technique of all time for this week. Yeah, so this is actually something I, I never really realized I did until I was teaching a class one time and someone pointed it out. Um, and I'm always uh, – it has to do with stop blocks. And I use stop blocks whenever – you know, for whenever I can on the drill press, on my shooting board, on my table saw, what have you. And uh, I was setting the distance of the stop block from the blade on my – on this crosscut slow we had in the class. And it was a zero-curf uh, crosscut blade. Uh, zero clearance. Zero clearance, right. Mm-hmm. Zero clearance, crosscut sled. And so in order to make sure that the ruler I was using to set the stop block was accurately on the edge of the zero clearance kerf, I put another ruler into the kerf and pressed it against the side of, of the kerf. Of the kerf. Right, 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 right. Yeah, of the, of the, of the thing. And then I just was able to put the uh, – and then I just put the ruler against that and you know it's lined up right. perfectly. Uh, so the other thing you can do is, uh, if, if you're comfortable doing this at your house, uh, you could unplug your saw and put the, uh, end of the ruler that you're using to measure the distance of the, uh, the stop block against the tooth of the saw blade. Not the plate, but the tooth. The tooth, correct. Not the plate, but the tooth. But you should really only do that if your saw is unplugged. That's kind of a pain in the neck. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you got to encourage safe practices, right, Mike? I didn't hmm. say anything. Um... Well, I unplug yeah. all my power tools and machinery before I leave the shop every evening. Do you? No. I don't. No. <laughs> yeah, the problem, though, is uh, Mike here has... You can lock your shop. Mike has a very powerful router that has a certain type of trigger 
switch wow. on it. And one time we were shooting a video <laughs> workshop. Is this uh, that plug and, router uh, you have? Yeah. Yeah. And we, we plugged, <laughs> I was by the camera and Mike plugs the router in to get started and the switch was in the on position and it just, <laughs> was that what happened? Is that what happened? Oh, I mean, there's two things. I have a trim router with a lot of torque to it. Uh, it's a DeWalt and it's got an off on switch. And if it's on, when you plug it in, the thing will jump off the bench. Um, but and I actually have a three-horse <laughs> uh, plunge router. It's a fine. They don't make it anymore, and I got a really good price on it, and I think it was because oh, uh, right. it has an unguarded on switch. Right. A trigger handle. A trigger, oh, trigger yeah. handle. And, and literally, if it's laying down on the bench That's and you what roll it, it a certain yeah. way, it will it will engage the on switch, the trigger handle, and right. the bit will start spinning. Mm-hmm even if you are in the process of changing a router bit, which I was very close to be doing when, and actually, you know, router anytime. So one, that's a no-brainer. Unplug those suckers if you're changing your bits. In this case, I was doing something like, a, I think I was adjusting a dust shroud or something like that, but it went on inadvertently and it just scared the crap out of me enough to where I make sure I do unplug the router. Yeah. Unfortunately, I still own it because it works really well. But um, That's a sweet I, router. Um, it is. I wouldn't recommend my uh, brother-in-law <laughs> buy one, but uh, anyway. The thing that I have a bandsaw with an electric brake on it. Yeah. And what always drives me crazy is that the electric brake has a key, and you can turn it off and on. And I'm fairly confident you should leave it off when you're not using it. Yes. But I always forget, and I leave it on, and then I come down like you know maybe two or three days later, and I'm like, you know, F train. It's been on the whole time. You know? Right. Anyways. F train. <laughs> um, all right. Well, oh, I have a very simple one because I, I couldn't – I was having trouble thinking of a really cool technique. But um, when I started using card scrapers, um, I didn't really understand them. And uh, a lot of the time I would be using a card scraper and I'd be pulling up a lot of dust thinking, all right, I'm cutting right through this stuff. Excellent. <laughs> and then finally when I got some schooling, uh, I realized that uh, if you're using a card scraper and you're getting dust – you have a dull card scraper. Yeah. Right. If you're getting shavings, uh, then you've got a sharp card scraper. So dust, bad. Uh, shavings, good. Um, but it's, you know, I had no idea at all when I first started using card scrapers. So I, it's just one of those things. It's um, anybody who's uh, uh, starting to use card scrapers, it's a good thing to know. And also know how to turn the hook on the card scraper properly, which Mike did a really cool video on. Uh, and an article. And an article yes. uh, this year. So that's mine. Um, but anyhow, moving on. Uh, third question of the day comes from Martin Gardner. And Martin wrote, I have a beautiful Comet radial arm saw that's gathering dust. It's a beautiful 1950s object full of curves. Whatever happened to the radial arm saw? Can its disappearance be attributed to safety issues? Was it a lack of precision? Keep up the good work. Um, now, I know we've talked about radial arm saws before, but it was it was a long time ago. It might have been like a year ago, almost. No, nah, it was like two weeks ago. No. <laughs> um, well, they haven't disappeared from your shop, Matt. You that's own right. one. I own one. It's not a Comet radial arm saw with full of curves, yeah. but it's a 70s radial arm saw full of cheap material. Um, I use it. I just have it set up for cross cuts, and that's mm-hmm. all I use it for. Now, granted, I don't trust it to make uh, furniture quality cuts, uh, simply because I don't want to deal with it coming uh, occasionally coming out of square and so forth. So I use it to rough out materials, uh, which use it's like good a chop for. Saw. Yeah, I use it like a chop saw, and I don't move it to do angles or anything, just because I don't I don't do that kind of stuff in my work very often. So 
I, I would guess that the reason it's you don't see them around him, I think there's a couple of different reasons, but probably the big reason is is that a chop saw is so much more convenient. Sure. Yeah, especially in the trades. If you're in the right. construction work, you can haul a chop saw around pretty easily. I also think that the something you were just speaking to where um, where they get relegated to basically a crosscut saw today, which is why the chop saw has sort of replaced it. Back in the day, the radial arm saw was sold as one of those you know all-in-one tools. You, right. You, they said you can rip with it, crosscut with it. Put, route uh, with it. Route with it. Put a planer head on yep. it and thickness yep. boards with it. I have never it. seen... Okay, now... You I'll were, bring we in about this the manual for mine and I'll show you. You can attach different heads to this thing? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. I've never yeah. seen one used that way. I mean, I used them... Yeah. Uh, it's because all the people that ago, used them but... that way died in the 70s. Oh. Okay. <laughs> due, due to shop injuries. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> but table saw is better for ripping. Yeah. You know, so it's like all the other features they offer you... You can do it in a more convenient way with some other tool. And if you're a furniture maker, you have a shop with tools set up, et cetera. So you don't need this jack-of-all-trades. Right. Yeah, so on one hand, it can save you from buying a chop saw and a table saw. But, um, you know, a chop saw and a table saw is probably a more efficient means to do the task that a radial arm saw right. can do. But this guy should clean it off and get it set up and use it as a crosscut saw. Yeah. I mean, why not? Why All not right. just sit there? Well, next question comes from Tom Stevenson, and Tom wrote, From time to time, I've found the need for a sliding caliper. I'd like to invest in a quality Starrett dial caliper, but don't know if I should go with a fractional caliper or a regular numeric caliper that reads in decimal points. What has been your experience? Gentlemen. <laughs> I love saying that. Gentlemen. Well, I think we probably have some general advice on yeah. this regard that you may not want to hear, but I... No, the- lay it out. I would say, and I think Mike might agree with me, is this, is that you don't really need one. Maybe that he does stuff that he needs one for. Maybe he's a turner or something. I don't know. I think I use mine twice a year, maybe. maybe. Yeah, you just don't use them very often. I, I have a fractional caliper, and if I were to choose one or the other, I would buy a fractional caliper because... That's how you make your measurements. I work in fractions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a robot. I can't do decimals that quickly. Yeah, I have a decimal inch, inch uh, caliper, and... I imagine the fractional would be a better one to have, but again, um, I use it so infrequently that I certainly get by with it. But uh. I, uh, I do not. I have a you know like a numeric uh, decimal uh, style caliper, and I don't have these problems converting because all I do is I take my measurement with a caliper, and then I take out my ruler <laughs> and I measure between the two fingers. <laughs> yeah. There you go, fractional yeah, I mean, baby. But I, I think actually more to this uh, guy's question. Yeah. I would say if you really want one, I I would not go buy a super expensive machinist tool because you're not working steel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you don't need that type of super-duper high-quality accuracy. The one that I have, which is actually really nice, is made by a company called Syntec. And you can buy it at that store we all love and hate, Harbor Freight. Yeah. And it's, it's like 16 bucks, and it's a really good quality fractional caliper. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would do. Actually, for me, in all practical uh, purposes, my go-to caliper is my combo square. Yeah, I'd that say works. invest in a really good quality combination square, and uh, I use that. You know, for you know that sliding bar, I'll use right. that to measure the thickness depth. of stock, the depths of mortises, all yeah. that good kind of stuff. Yeah, combo score is definitely a place where it pays to spend money to get a really good one. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And we did a test of those. Phil yes. Lowe did. And in that case, I would definitely recommend the fractional. Combo squares. You want to get a, a 4R grad, right? Because that yes. has six, uh, 
64 is 32nd, right. 16th, and 8th. Yes. I had the one where I actually had uh, tenths and a hundredths on one side. That's and, really useful. And 32nd and 64th <laughs> on the other side. Uh, super useful. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Don't get that one. Yeah. I'm pretty um, sure it's the 4R grad is what it's called. But 4R we, is what you want to look for if yeah. you're buying combo squares. Yep. Right. Uh, with that, we're going to head into our next segment for the week. And uh, this week, we're going to do What Are You Working On This Week? Uh, where we... Uh, find out what uh, these gentlemen are building in their much vaunted shops or maybe not vaunted vaunted's a great word i don't have any vaulted ceilings they're flat. vaunted oh vaunted sorry yes. you know i got a cold i'm a little stuffy over here um anyhow so now mike already kind of blew his earlier but let's go into more detail well I'm, oddly i'm actually i'm working on a pommel horse so <laughs> pommel it's horse. kind of like vaulting or vaunting. You're not serious, are you? <laughs> no, okay. I'm not. <laughs> say, are you actually sewing on the, the hide for the... You know? <laughs> um, so, Mike, what's the scoop? Well, I uh, teach on a fairly regular basis, so I'm always grabbing a handful of hand tools and stuffing them in my canvas travel bag, wrapping them in plain socks or bubble wrap or whatever to keep them from banging around. And finally, I said, you know, it'd be really cool to come up with a little tool chest just large enough to hold my essential hand tools for what I'm teaching. And it kind of brought up um, an interesting question, which is I have a fairly large uh, hanging tool cabinet in my shop with quite a few hand tools. Really? You have a lot of hand tools? But when push comes to shove (laughs) and I really am only looking to get the essential tools, it turns out I don't actually need to take every tool in my cabinet. You should have just put wheels on your cabinet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's true. And a trailer hitch. And a trailer hitch. There you go. Uh, And it it turns out that – so basically what I'm doing is not only building a a little hand tool chest uh, for travel, I'm also – actually in the process of deciding exactly what those essential hand tools are going to be. And um, one interesting thing that came about was uh, I still need five hand planes. But um, in terms of chisels, I have Who doesn't? a broad variety of chisels, whether they're um, antique chisels, new Western chisels, new Japanese chisels. And when push came to shove, I decided that I would only include my set of Japanese chisels in my travel kit. Interesting. I, I could see myself getting by with a three-quarter inch bevel, bevel chisel, uh, bench, you know, bevel bench inch bench chisel, chisel. Yeah. Uh, my three-quarter inch Japanese paring chisel, uh-huh. and uh, maybe an eighth inch and then like a five-sixteenths. Okay. Interesting. Because I prefer my Ukrainian chisels. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Mm-hmm. So Indeed. I... Radioactive? My, mm. my basic set is like quarter, three-eighths, half, three-quarter bench chisels. And then I have one chisel with the triangular profile for getting into dovetail corners, and then actually a pair of skew chisels. Those are some Buck Brothers chisels to get into Excuse the half-line dovetails. What, what kind of chisels are those? Uh, those are Buck Brothers. Thank it's you. A, Thank you for enunciating that better, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> the, the yellow plastic handle Home Depot variety. So You made those yourself, um, right? I ground them myself. Yeah, ground them yourself. I, I couldn't bring myself <clears throat> to buy a pair of $80 match yeah, set no, of skew no, no. chisels or – Take a or nice grind chisel a Lee to a grinder. Yeah. yeah. Well, so. uh, actually, some guy asked me this past week in a Lee Nielsen show. He said, should I get a uh, a fishtail chisel or get the pair of skew chisels? Hmm. And at first I was like, well, you're asking the wrong guy because I have neither one yeah. of them. But uh, I think I would get a fishtail chisel for that, I think. Yeah. Because you don't have to have one. they got kind of a skinny little shank. Is that something you can still, like, bang on with a mallet? Absolutely, Mike. You should with a sledgehammer. Okay. No, of course not. It's a paring chisel. 
Yeah, you still need to sever that end grain in the corners, take a little smack with well, that. Well, if you would sharpen your chisels every now and then, Mike, you wouldn't have to Mike always it. works with really dull tools. <laughs> I didn't want to say that. He's pathetic. <laughs> so, so the five hand planes in there are number four. Got to have number four. I decided to throw a number five in there. Um, and then I did a low angle bevel up number four for shooting. And then a shoulder plane and block plane. So mm. that's not bad. What's what's your uh, your chest uh, being built out of? Um, I'm actually building it. This is a good question because I don't know if it's a bad idea yet or not. I'm making it out of butternut. That's what it was. I saw you working it the other yeah. day in the shop. I was like, what the heck is this? So I wanted okay. something light. It do the thing out of white oak. Yeah, it's going to be bomb-proof. It's also going to weigh 50 pounds right. without having any tools in it. Right. So butternut's nice and light. I actually had some on hand. It's really pretty. It's also really soft. So... It's my just, my gambit is this. It's, it's going to get gonna, banged up. Yeah, it's going to so get banged what? up and dinged up. And I think it's going to look really, really good right when it's done and then start to look really bad when it gets a couple dings. No, but, I think that's good. But then look better when it's got enough dings right. to make it look like it's, you start like it's been used. That loved. You're going to paint it like one of those Dutch uh, one of those Dutch uh, yeah, blanket chests from Pennsylvania, chest. right? Yeah, yep. <laughs> a little milk paint. <laughs> those are funky. Yeah. <laughs> that's actually interesting because uh, – it reminds me of my tool chest, oh. uh, which I should – I mean, I actually am working on stuff right now, but I'm just slaving away on a prop for the magazine. So I'll tell you about my tool chest. I actually call it the Rednecks uh, Traveling Tool Chest. Oh, yes. And I can say that because I'm from the South. Well, the people in the South probably don't think I'm from the South, but I am. Uh, it's actually a 60-gallon igloo cooler with wheels <laughs> <laughs> in a handle. So I don't use it anymore, so I just put my tools in the Disgusting. igloo. <laughs> Hold on. I'm potting that down completely. Sorry. Um, actually, my I do have a tool chest because I travel to Lee Nielsen shows and to teach. And so what I ended up getting before uh, this past summer when we went to Finewood Working Live was I went to – you know, your home center, and yeah. I found, like, for, like, 60 bucks, this big plastic rolling tool chest. Yeah. Oh. And it's got Stanley a, makes those. I, I think, think it's Stanley, yeah. It's, it's, like, mm. it's like rolling carry-on baggage kind of. It's bigger than that, much bigger than that. Bigger, but it's yeah. same kind of Yeah, it's of got idea. two nice big wheels, and it's then on the other end, it's got a, a really long handle for added uh, leverage or leverage, depending on where you're from. Uh, and so I can load it up with as much – I can basically fit everything I need uh, – to go on the road with in there and it has a nice little tray where I can put like all my layout tools in there and it's lockable so I can lock it when I'm traveling because mm-hmm. I have a truck and it always is in the back of my truck so I can lock it. Um, I think it's fantastic. The only problem is yeah, I end up having to wrap stuff up to put it in there. I'm thinking about making I, I probably won't do this but fitted trays or somehow to get that right. or I'm going to get some rigid foam insulation and cut that out to fit in there and just make different layers of it and then French fit my tools into the rigid foam and it'll be pink and silver, but it'll be nice. I may well spray paint it. Um, Well, this kind of leads into an interesting, um, an interesting critique of Mike's uh, tool cabinet that he built for the video workshop this year. The one for his shop. In his shop. Yeah. Um, So Mike, fill us in because there's a, there's a philosophical debate here. Oh, well, this was interesting. I was made aware of an irony in the uh, video workshop that sort of escaped me while we were shooting it. And uh, basically, the video workshop was on doing a hanging cabinet for hand tools. And then I went and proceeded to show you how to cut dovetails on the table saw. And um, some folks saw a a bit of a disconnect between what the cabinet was being used for ultimately, which was hand tool storage, and the fact that I was using power tools to – 
to actually make the cabinet, which to me, the logic seemed fine to me because it's like I'm going to get through the process the way I normally make furniture, a combination of hand and power yeah. tools, even on something to hold hand tools only. But mm-hmm. I think it does raise a, a good point where there's a, a bit of symmetry and poetry in if you're making something to hold hand tools, to make it with hand tools only. I get that. I was sort of more interested in getting this up and, and right. running and actually providing people an opportunity to or some techniques to get something up on the wall, get their tools in there so they can do some other woodworking. Um, you know, I know a lot of folks uh, are enamored with building a 800-pound workbench before they get to plying their craft. Right. And uh, that can become a, uh, a stumbling block or a hindrance to actually moving on. So um, I think there's room for debate on, on either side. I don't know. Uh, I have to agree with your critics. When I made a chest of drawers, I, yes. I used socks and T-shirts to make it. That's <laughs> <laughs> just stupid criticism. Um, that. Well, I'll just be blind. I think it's dumb criticism. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, but you see that when you say it like that, you yeah. see how ridiculous of a criticism it is. I mean, there's no necessary connection. This is bef- the philosopher and Matt between the, what's inside the cabinet and how you make the cabinet. It's right. absurd. No, but Mike is right. There's a nice poetry if you use hand tools to make the hand tool cabinet. But by no means is it wrong to make it with power tools or shameful or anything else. Why don't you learn us, Matt? <coughs> Well, actually, this kind yeah, of reminds I mean, me of something else that happened. Recently. You actually often cheat at woodworking, though, so I'm not <laughs> sure how valid your opinion is. Yeah, so I was uh, I was uh, at a show recently, and I was uh, just hanging out, passing out magazines, talking to hand tool people, and uh, just basically being my normal charming self, right? So at one point, you know, I, when I go debatable. to these, yeah, mm. I know it's highly debatable. <laughs> um, I'm I'm cutting dovetails while I'm there, just to have something to do and have something to talk about, and. I'm cleaning out the waist between the tails, and the tailboard is on this jig that I made where the tailboard goes in between a fence and a plywood base. And that fence screws down on top of the board, and the edge of the fence lines up with the baseline and the joint. And then you can use this fence, which is about two inches thick, as a chisel guide to chisel down your baseline. Nice and square. Yeah, you would think it was smart, right? So anyways, this other guy wanders over, and he says, uh, you're cheating. Hmm. And uh, my immediate response was, no, I'm not. And he and I had a further exchange. uh, But in the end, he was convinced that what I was doing was cheating. And when he left, I sort of turned to the other people that were around and I said, you know, there's no such thing as cheating and woodworking. Don't ever let anyone tell you that. That, you know, of course, there are other things that are important. You have to make furniture that's strong. The joints have to be well made, et cetera, Hmm. et cetera. But how you make the joint is completely irrelevant. Sure. And you can tell that because I had a cabinet there that I made with dovetails, and a lot of people came by and looked at them and said, "Well, there's you know it's a really nice cabinet, nice joint, da da da." No one asked me, "How did you cut those dovetails?" Right. No one. Right. And so, and those were woodworkers, and people who don't do woodworking care even less. So it's like there is no cheating in woodworking. It's you know, design furniture, uh, make furniture, and do whatever it takes to make the furniture you design. Right. That means, you know, a router check for dovetails. Um, hey, you know, don't apologize for that. Right. Yeah. And, you know, if you think that hand-cut dovetails look better than router ones, then practice hand-cut right. dovetails. But, you know, don't say that uh, the router or the table saw or the band saw are inappropriate for cutting dovetails because they're not. Right. You know, it's just a tool. Don't, yeah. get, don't get trapped up in the tools and the techniques. So what happened afterwards? Pistols at dawn? 
Yes, pistol head dawn. <laughs> no, it, it it blew over. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't contentious at all. And you know, it didn't. Uh, I mean, it, it, what bothered me was that there were a lot of people around who, <coughs> excuse me, might not have been. Uh, you know, I consider myself sort of an intermediate woodworker in terms of skill and all that. <laughs> and there might have been people around, and I know there are people around who aren't that level. And the last thing you want to do is deter someone who's trying to get the confidence up to build furniture and to tell them, well, okay, you need to make dovetails, but you shouldn't use that jig because it's cheating. Exactly. Or you shouldn't use a honing guide for sharpening because right. that's cheating. Right? Yeah. It's just um, what you want to do is show the person how to make a beautiful piece of furniture because the beautiful piece of furniture will encourage them to make more. Exactly. And they can expand upon their skills as they go. Yeah, it's a tough craft. Don't make it any tougher on yourself for dumb reasons. Yeah. All right. Uh, next question comes from Willie, who wrote, I, like lots of woodworkers, dove right into the flea market and online auction tool search and outfitted myself with a series of Stanley hand planes. But when I purchased my first Lee Nielsen block plane, now I'm hooked on the quality and precision the premium planes offer. So as I slowly replace my vintage Stanley models with newer ones, I'd like to find a use for them instead of just retiring them. Any ideas? Now, this guy, I should say, uh, went on to... I, I edited edited his uh, his question, and he had... I mean, I'm joking here, but basically he had a number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, right. number six, number seven, number eight, number nine, number ten, number eleven, number twelve, number thirteen, number four. He has like 14 <laughs> different types of... Yeah, man, he's uh, serious. Block planes. Um, well... You know, first of all, if one of your Stanleys is in good working order and it's in good shape, don't replace it. You know, just use it. But if you are going to get like a new smoother, Mike, what do you think you should do with two smoothers? Um, you can do uh, like a number four, for example. Um, I can think of some really good reasons why you want two or three or even four number four planes because even though they're the same size, you can set them up for pretty different purposes. And I get, forgot who we were talking to. Mike's <laughs> like, yeah, there's a reason to have 15 number fours. <laughs> but, um, you know, so you set one up with a wide mouth and a more camber blade for rougher stock. Maybe you put a back bevel on one for really gnarly grain. Um, but to your point, Matt, is that uh, there is a difference between a high-quality new plane and even a vintage plane which has been tuned up True. really, really well with an aftermarket blade. But... Um, I think that difference is only really practically necessary for a very limited number of planes. I'd say a smoother is one example where, yeah, that's where that maybe 2% difference between a vintage Stanley with a hawk iron in it versus a Lee Nielsen or Veritas mm -hmm. um, is going to make a difference. I yes. think a number five, a number six, a number seven. And not eh, right. You got a good Stanley with a flat sole and a good blade. The difference between that and a high-performing new plane is probably not significant enough to do it. I don't want to talk you out of buying new hand planes. That's, right. uh, that's not our job here. But um, that said, if it's your aim to own a, you know, a Lee Nielsen example of every single size plane, more power to you. I wish I would probably have that set if I could afford it. But really for me in terms of uh, my priorities, it's not practical or even really necessary from a woodworking standpoint. Yeah, and I would say, you know, if you replace planes, say like you replace your jack plane, and I mean, I guess you could have a, a jack plane set up two different ways for different types of cuts, mm -hmm. you know, but if you're only going to have it set up one way, here's what you should do with your leftover planes and your block planes too. Give them to a new woodworker and help that woodworker out, you know. 
yeah. or sell it to the woodworker for a reason, you know, a, a, you know, at cost or less and right. help someone out. I had someone gave me some planes when I first started woodworking and it was really beneficial, you know. Yep. And and take that point one step further. Show them how Send to them use to it. Mike. Uh, no, no. <laughs> show them how to use a plane. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. There was always this debate, is you know, before the whole you know advent of Lee Nielsen Veritas, it was always you know the vintage you know hand planes. Oh, do I use those, or am I you know somehow by flattening the sole and my you know getting rid of the original patina and making it work less as a collector tool? And it's it's always been it isn't the value of the tool itself it's the value of knowing how to use that tool right so it's that you know passing on the the knowledge of the tool spreading that around as well as uh getting good tools in people's hands that's the important yeah. thing plus the chance of, of being out in the wild and finding a really valuable old hand plane yeah is almost nil. Right. Those hand planes get bought up by dealers who then sell them to collectors. Right. Yeah, but you have to be careful. I mean, when you're out in the wild, um, I know that feral <laughs> hand planes can be very, <laughs> very, very dangerous. dangerous. Yes. So. They often bite. They do. Yeah. <laughs> to be very careful. All right. You um, should always approach a feral hand plane from the back and first and grab And make it. a little bit of noise so it yes. knows you're coming. Grab it by the tote. That's right. And then gently bring your hand around and clutch it by the toe. That's right. That, that actually makes it curl up in your arms. Yes. It, it, it's weird. It's like petting a dog on its belly. Yes. You know? And then you get a straw, and if you blow a little bit of air That's on the right. sole, yes. it'll fall asleep. Uh, but it has to be through a straw. It likes that concentrated yeah, air. Absolutely. <laughs> Look, we're on the same page, Matt. Um, all right. Well, uh, last I'm question. Probably running about fever of about 107 right now. Um, it's starting to work for you, though. I like yeah. it. Levi Hunt wrote, have you guys got any advice regarding the purchase of a good, solid 6-inch jointer for around three to $400? I'm hesitant on a used model since I don't have the experience or confidence in making a good purchase on a machine that's not been abused. Um, so 6-inch, he's got three to 400 bucks to spend. I think that price point, I don't, I'd have to check, but I think that price point might be a little difficult with new models. I'm not sure if someone, you know, anyone's... Grizzly, I think you were, we were chatting about this yesterday, and I think Grizzly makes it. A small jointer for about four hundred bucks, I think. Yeah. The other thing to do, I have a used six inch jointer which I got for less than three hundred. Yeah. And an old Delta, right? An old Delta, yeah. and it's not hard to figure out what you need to look at to know if an old machine is worth buying. Um, one, you could read Raleigh Johnson's article in the magazine where he talks about buying used machinery. Yep. Two, you could join a website called owwm.org. They have a, a forum there. Old Woodworking Machines, isn't it? .org, correct. Yeah. yeah, and those guys, uh, I think, you know, I think a lot of them do do woodworking, but I think a lot of for a lot of them the love is rehabbing old machinery. Yeah. So get go there, read what you find. And they also have a pretty nice, uh, they call it the Boyd Forum, the Bring Out Your Dead Forum, where they sell machines they don't I'm want anymore. I'm not dead yet. And that's where I got my joiner. And, uh, <laughs> you know. You'll learn what it takes for uh, all the you know what areas to look at, and you can find some really good, solid cast iron, all cast iron six inch joiners out there for a re- a really good price. So look up uh, there's a, there's a b- bunch of articles online by Roland Johnson uh, on the subject. Yeah, and the, and the things that you would want in a new joiner in terms of flat tables, etc., are the same things you would want in an old joiner. Yeah, yeah. The important thing for a joiner to function properly is the uh, two tables need to be coplanar, meaning they need to be level with one another. If they're not, if they sag, uh, you're going to have all kinds of problems. Um, and 
you can fix that. And Raleigh talks about, uh, I think he talks about fixing that. It might have been he did a jointer tune-up article where he talked about it could uh, fixing be. that. The bottom line is if you're looking at a new jointer, if you can see it in person, that's great. Take a straight edge, put it across the beds. If they're level, you have a good jointer. Uh, if you're going used, I would probably recommend a brand where it's uh, like a Delta's, you know, for example, is a good brand where um, don't but, get a old off name joiner, which yeah. might have had problems. Oh, yours is like with. 50s vintage or 40s, I think. Um, but actually, there are a lot of older brands that are out of business anymore, aren't in business anymore. And those are very good machines, like Oliver, for example. Oh, sure. sure. The old Oliver. I don't know anything about the new Oliver, but the old Oliver, for example, or Yates American. Uh, I think there's one called American Foundry or something like that. Right. I was thinking more, you know, something manufactured in the last 10 or 20 years, something like that. Yeah, or one of those things that came into the country during the 80s from uh, offshores that were pretty junky. There were a lot of brands back then. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I'd say stick with a brand you've probably heard of. Right. And if it's used, go see it in person. Yes. Turn it on. Plug it in. Yeah, you can can glean a lot, I would imagine, by the, the sound of the motor. I mean, you can kind of, you can generally, am I correct in saying that you can generally tell the sound of an off-bearing um, uh, in a motor by It's that very sound. possible that the, when you turn it on, uh, the bearing will, um, or when you stop it, it'll do that. And I think that if a bearing takes too long to spin down, that's mm-hmm. a sign of a bad bearing. Good bearings don't spin a lot. They spin less. Because they've got well, grease in They've got stuff. grease in there, which, right. Yeah. Um, and I'd steer clear of anything with Babbitt bearings. For a beginner, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You want sealed bearings, yeah. Again, why you know why in the name of saving you know a couple hundred bucks? I understand finances are an important thing, but if you're putting good money into a machine that needs a lot of work or that isn't going to do the job in the way it should be doing, you're not really doing yourself any favors when it comes to moving your woodworking forward, right? And this guy, it sounds like this guy would be best off to find a machine that someone else has rehabbed or is already in working condition, mm-hmm. and don't buy something that's going to take you six months to rehabilitate, right? Because it'll end up being like my Hitachi Super Surfacer, just sitting in your garage. <laughs> Such a neat tool, though. Um, all right. Well, uh, I have decided this week we're going to bring back the. Shop Stumper. We're going to do a uh, an audio stumper this week, and here's how it works. Uh, we're going to play a workshop-related sound. Um, your job is to identify the sound, and uh, if you can identify it, send us an email at shoptalk at tauntin.com. That's T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com, uh, with the subject line <laughs> Shop Stumper, and we will select... Um, from among all the winners, all the you know all the correct answers, we'll select one winner at random to take home a set of Rockler bench cookies. So, with that, here's the sound. Okay, now I'm going to play it one more time just for good measure. Here it is. All right, now if you think you know what that sound is, send us an email at shoptalk@taunton.com with Shop Stumper in the subject line, and we will announce a winner uh, on the next podcast in two weeks. So um, we're wrapping things up now. We, uh, As you all know, uh, at the end of every show, I like to read a few of the comments we get in our iTunes store page. And uh, here they are for this week. Uh, Kenny Boat wrote in to say... I like that name. (laughs) (laughs) 
Great show. Nice to hear the guys from MWA, uh, the Modern Woodworkers Association, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, were on uh, on our last podcast. The MWA and FWW Online are valuable assets in my journey into woodworking, and really, who would have thought you could learn about chaps and thigh masters? Ha, ha, ha. Uh, again, another reference to our So I'm telling you MWA we should do a episode. show specialized to... In chaps? Uh, chaps. Chaps in the wood in the work in the I wood shop. I think we should veer away from this subject, Matt. This can go downhill very quickly. Um, from Mangled Andrus, love the not show. An encouraging name. No, it's an, it, I want to know what that. He could be part of the shop stumper though if he's mangled. I suppose. Yeah. Love the show. While working in my t-shirt printing shop, I listen to the show and imagine that my printing press is gathering sawdust instead of my table saw gathering lint. I glean something useful from every episode. Thanks and keep them coming. And finally, a self-serving comment from Ben Tonko, who wrote in to say, This one is for you, Ed. Great show. Keep the ship afloat. Thanks. Hmm. And with that... Interesting. Yeah. Yes. Ben Tonko, huh? <laughs> yes. Hmm. Is that an anagram for some part of your name? <laughs> well, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on January 25th for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes, and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes or stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com. Cheers, everybody. 